Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Hellenistic Christendom, where today's going to be a little bit different and very brief. I'm just going to tell uh, a few quick stories, because I just want to give a little, I guess a message, I guess if I could call it that, I don't want to, but just more of a discussion, I guess, reflecting on some things. And if I were to give it a title, I would probably give it the title, um, Believe God Can. And now, if you would have asked me maybe just five years ago, maybe even less than that, um, you know, what my thoughts would be on giving a message entitled Believe God Can, uh, to me, it just sounds very cheesy. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be caught dead giving a message like that. I wouldn't even know what to talk about. Um, but really, what I think I've been broke by this year is by kind of cultivating this element in my prayer life. Um, I guess kind of, I guess I would call simplicity. Um, I guess I'll kind of get into a story first, then I'll talk about the subject a little bit more. But basically, I am looking for a new place. Um, an opportunity kind of came all of a sudden out of nowhere uh, to finally obtain uh, a new place, one bedroom, one one bath apartment. Um, like I said, it came quick and suddenly, and so I just made about a, a about 24 hours ago a Facebook post, um, just kind of like a prayer request, asking, you know, basically uh, <laughs> spiritual assistance from my fellow brothers and Christ- brothers and sisters in Christ. So. It's always encouraging to to reach out to others and fellowship and to, you know, it's not really, I guess I'm not really approaching this issue as if I really, really want it. Can it God, can I please just, you know, of course, God's will be done. And if anything, I am more preoccupied with the place or the room that I've been prepared in heaven rather than the one I'm prepared here on earth. So, of course, there's contentment that I experience in all things, but this was a beautiful opportunity. And so I resorted to uh, social media to uh, incite some public prayer or private, I guess. Um, and then today, after I made that that post, just, you know, I've prayed over it, I've asked others to pray for it, for the first time in my serving career. Now, I work, I've worked primarily in restaurants. I've been working in them since I was about 18 or so. I just fresh out of high school. My first job was a restaurant, a barbecue restaurant. And then got into fine dining and etc. Out of all that time, no one has ever stopped me and pulled me aside and said, hey, I know this is going to sound weird, but is is there something that I can pray for for you? Um, or, you know, how can I pray for you? And I kind of looked at her and I said, no, that's not strange at all. But I was taken back by it because it was a young woman and she was around her friends and they were kind of in their own conversation. And I think it's one of those things where when someone kind of goes off to the side to say something to the server, kind of like that, everyone kind of notices. So I had this moment with the table where I was like, um, no, you're fine. Uh, bless you, first of all. Uh, but yeah, actually, you can, if you like, you can pray for this situation I have regarding this this place that's actually two blocks from here. That's why I'm really excited because it's a beautiful setup. It's very close to work. And anyway, so like I said, this is the first time anyone's ever asked me uh, if... They can pray for me while I've been on the clock. It's the most bizarre thing. Uh, she even left me a note saying, thank you, God bless you. And so that was really encouraging. And so so anyway, what's really peculiar to me is that, again, I'm not placing my hopes in anything too extreme with this, but 
and like I, said, I think this situation is probably just more personal, more sensible to me. But given that, you know, <laughs> I made you know the sort of the the public announcement that this was going on, and then all of a sudden God sends me this young woman who asks, "How can I pray for you?" Um, that to me was what was significant, and I want to get in now to this idea of believing that God can. Um, and this believing that God can doesn't have to necessarily do with getting you what you want, but this idea that your wants and God wants can actually coincide, and that actually you might surprise God. Um, particularly, I want to look to an instance with Christ, so I, I use surprised with Christ quotes there, but looking to Matthew chapter 8, and that's why I'm kind of getting together for this episode. Um, The faith of a centurion. So starting at chapter 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Now this was a a Roman official, a Roman soldier, if you will. Now mind you, the Romans and the Jews hated each other. They had no business speaking to one another. But it says, appealing to him, he says, Lord, My servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then verse 10 is the significant kind of changing point. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And it's interesting, even in the Greek, it it, it actually in some translations says, Not even one in Israel have I found such faith. So this has sort of pointers to Gentiles now. So he goes on to say, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Now, um, I want to look to Calvin's commentary on this. And particularly looking at verse 10, uh, where it says, Jesus wondered. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at the conversation of Western philosophy and its understanding of wonder, you find various conceptions, but particularly you see a change in the modern period, particularly under Descartes, when he starts to look at passions uh, on the soul in a sort of differentiated sort of platonic context, wherein wonder is one of the primal passions of the soul that doesn't have a contrary. For example, whereas hope is one passion of the soul. Despair is another. They have contraries, love and hate and so on and so forth. But wonder doesn't have a contrary, says Descartes. And as such, it's this kind of primal aspect that is within the soul of man that orients him upwards. And that's sort of the more modern understanding. However, uh, the medieval scholastics, particularly Thomas Aquinas, tended to go another direction by saying that wonder was a kind of fear And what's interesting is is that when I'm looking at Calvin's commentary, he seems to go more towards the medieval scholastic understanding and not to a modern understanding, if you will, where he says that wonder cannot apply to God, for it arises out of what is new and unexpected. But it might exist for Christ, for he had clothed himself with our flesh and with human affections. Now, it should be remembered, for example, in um, Philippians chapter 2, 
What's really interesting is that we find this phrase, and I actually want to see if I can pull it up real quick. So yeah, in Philippians 2, and I guess starting at verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross now what's amazing about that is that actually if you look at aristotle's philosophy of being he talks about this differentiating aspect between hyla and morpha between matter and form so the greek word for form is morpha and actually that's the greek word that paul uses here in talking about jesus being the form of God, and the form of a servant. And the early church actually had this emphatic insistence that there was an absolute unity within the being of Christ, so that to see that there was a distinct human nature and a distinct God nature, but that these were one within uh, Christ, who was said to be the second person of the Trinity. And so that's to say that because he had this human nature, he was ex- able to experience Uh, the various passions of the soul, but not ones that were affected by sin. So he could still experience sorrow and weep, that kind of stuff. And then to go further, um, now in the uh, explanation that Calvin gives, reflecting on that passage, not even in Israel have I found so great faith. He goes on to say, this is not spoken absolutely, but in a particular point of view. For if we consider all the properties of faith, we must conclude that the faith of Mary was greater in believing that she would be child with the Holy Ghost. Now moving forward, he says, but there were chiefly two reasons why Christ preferred the faith of a Gentile to the faith of all the Jews. One was that a, so of course, Gentile, for those of you who don't know, typically referring to a um, not Jewish. (laughs) We'll go with that. I was going to say Greek-speaking Jew, but that could be the case, but it's, um, anyway, uh, we'll just say non-Jewish is what a Gentile is. One was that a slight and inconsiderable acquaintance with doctrine yielded so sudden and abundant fruit. It was no small matter to declare in such lofty terms the power of God, of which a few rays only were yet visible in Christ. And this is significant. Another reason was that while the Jews were excessively eager to obtain outward signs, this Gentile asked for no visible sign, but openly declares that he wants nothing more than the bare word. So what's really amazing to me about that passage and going back to the point of this whole discussion is believing that God can, is that a Roman centurion who had no business in being in even the company of a Jewish individual, let alone asking for his help in healing one of his servants, he actually speaks on the sort of power that is possessed within Christ. And what's amazing about that is that this is a Gentile. This is someone who doesn't have the understanding of the law and the prophets and hasn't been um, brought up in that understanding of the Jewish faith. But he comes to Christ with this supposition for some reason to say, let me get back to the verse here. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. So what's strange about that in some individuals that approach Christ, they'll say, Lord, if you are willing, this will take place. And it's amazing that people approach Christ with that kind of confidence. 
And this is the kind of confidence of, um, within faith that needs to be emphasized within the individual religious life. And I don't think people ap- uh, appreciate this a lot. Because one has to think, what does it mean to have a faith like a mustard seed or faith that can move mountains? What does it mean for things to be impossible for man, but all things to be possible for God? And that's precisely the fact that the human individual doesn't come to find themselves as inwardly, as themselves constructing their personality. But the point of the religious life is to come is for the individual to come to find themselves as being constructed by God, of course. And in so doing, there's this rebirth, of course, this regeneration that takes place that affects the whole being of man, not only his immaterial nature, but his material nature as well. And there's a congruence that takes place. And so this gets at this idea of Christian seriousness proper. And so I don't want to lose anybody here because my whole point of talking about this is this idea of simplicity and resorting back to these sort of basic things about what faith is and how one approaches Christ. And Christian seriousness is um, one of those important concepts that I think needs to be understood better. I'm getting it from Soren Kierkegaard. But he speaks about Christian seriousness proper. And he gives a formal definition in one of his, um, or in a journal passage, where he says that Christian seriousness proper is the sort of congruence or relationship between the intellect and the imagination, but is lacking this qualification of will. So what that means is, is that faith is something that is given to the individual. It's something that is received. But this faith at the same time is worked out. It perfects or constructs the individual, if you will. But they don't do this by their work alone. It is only by God. And when individuals orient themselves to being constructed by God in that way, it's by recognizing who you essentially are, which is, of course, guilty and a sinner, but then by handing yourself over this kind of submission, if you will, a new construction takes place within the individual life. And this is very significant because this is a kind of simplicity that's often missed. And I'll speak about simplicity in this, in this other kind of way. I'm a philosopher. I have to think about things in very abstract, complex ways. I really can't help it. For as long as I know, even before I really started getting into philosophy, I've always been very curious, very observant, asking weird questions that nobody asks. But then I come to find that these questions that I've been asking all these years... Um, of course, philosophers are you know, much more smarter than I am, but I'm just saying that I came to find that a lot of the questions I was asking as a kid, or even just growing up into my mid-teen years, I came to find that these were questions that were posited within philosophy, although they were more nuanced and complex ways that they were being asked, but you know, the nature of colors, what is this inside voice in my head, um, why do I feel these conflicting passions, and that kind of stuff, and I think philosophy helped me kind of elucidate that. And so about a year ago, when I was, again, on this philosophy journey, and I started up this, uh, what's, long story, anyway, I started up this opognosis project, which was this philosophical research project that I started about a year and a half ago to cultivate materials, resources, articles, papers, books, lectures, that could help Christians better understand the sex issue, the sex work, prostitution, and porn issue, more specifically. It was a research project dedicated to combating, if you will, um, sexually explicit, more pornographic material, and doing so from a sort of intellectually robust Christian perspective. Anyway, 
So me being a philosopher, I resort to, of course, what I know best, which is books. I read all through Aristotle's metaphysics. I remember I started at uh, book seven, worked my way up to book 10, went back to the beginning in book one, and then finished the book. And then I started getting into Soren Kierkegaard, and I'm, I'm head deep in, this, in, the, in you know, these lofty subjects of metaphysics, ontology, but then I get to the concept of anxiety. Okay. Um, oh, man. That work in itself is very, very difficult. But my point in bringing that up is this. Kierkegaard in 1844 wrote this book called The Concept of Anxiety. And in my opinion, it's probably the most significant work that he has written. Um, it's one of the most underappreciated, I think. It's also one of the most complex. But it's complex on purpose. And people tend to miss the... Uh, purposeful obscurity that takes place within this work. And so, in 1844, let me get closer here, he writes this book called The Concept of Anxiety. And the subtitle, (laughs) to be ironic, is A Simple Psychologically Orienting Deliberation on the Dogmatic Issue of Hereditary Sin. Let me repeat that. The full book title, I kid you not, and I'm not even looking at it because I have it memorized because I've read this book so many times because I truly wanted to understand what was being written here. I cannot express to you how many times I've read this book. It is lit up with pen marks, notes, and and the whole nine. The Concept of Anxiety, 1844, a simple psychologically orienting deliberation on the dogmatic issue of hereditary sin. It's a long title. In fact, Kierkegaard tended to do that uh, in order to be kind of ironic, to express something more primal. The only word I think that matters in that entire title is simple because it seems as if that work is anything but (laughs) a simple psychologically orienting deliberation on the dogmatic issue of hereditary sin. Why would simple, that seems everything but simple. In fact, Kierkegaard seems to be trying his hardest to make it not simple. And I didn't realize that until I read the concluding unscientific postscript, which was a book that was written in 1846. It's considered his magnum opus, uh, which it's a really important work, but I don't think, I don't think it's his opus. Uh, anyway, I read that somewhere and I would just disagree. But he writes this book called The Concluding Unscientific Postscript to the Philosophical Fragments. So it serves as like... Um, secondary addendum to another book he wrote. It's kind of funny. The Philosophical Fragments was kind of written very, written very quickly and it's very small. And the concluding unscientific postscript is, um, which they come towards the back of a book and they're supposed to be kind of small, but it's a huge book. So it's kind of meant to be like a joke and it's really written in jest to Hegel. Anyway, in that book, I promise I'm going to end the story. In that book, Kierkegaard basically says uh, the reason why um, this book appeared and why the author wrote it. And he kind of gives a hint to it by saying that he wrote it for those kind of individuals who are so concerned with intellectualism that all they need is just a kind of push in the right direction towards religious edification. And he did so by looking at the concept of anxiety. And that means <laughs> that all this labor, all this toil and time that I spend in trying to understand this complex philosophical work about religious psychology and, you know, looking at philosophical history, Christian history. And yet I came to find that Kierkegaard was really only getting at one single point, simplicity. 
And me being a philosopher and just getting and seeing myself doing this activity of intellectualism, Kierkegaard was so amazing to go further than me because, of course, he, I mean, I readily recognize that he understands more, he knows better, but he knows better in a way by which he, he kind of deceived me. <laughs> And that's a great thing. That's the point of his work. He's supposed to ensnare you. And once he brings you in and once he has you, you know, it's over. It's only a matter of time, I think. The more an individual reads Kierkegaard and tries to understand him, depending on what aspect within their life that they're in, um, I think Kierkegaard could get in, just depending on the level of patience, um, you know, philosophical training and, and all that. But otherwise, um, it took me all this time of study to really recognize that only the only thing that Kierkegaard was getting at was simplicity. To recognize the basic things of spiritual existence, like repentance, rebirth, the atonement, the incarnation, how I relate to these things, what these truths have to do with my life. And that was really amazing because it orients me to this aspect of faith where I'm no longer concerned with, so to speak, the externalities. And this is important that I talk about two kinds of immediacy. And I don't want to lose you here, so forgive me for how complex or abstract this conversation may seem, but essentially there's two kinds of immediacy. And I think it's a mark of the religious life to be uh, not caught up in one as opposed to the other. Specifically, the first kind of immediacy is what we all know by way of you know sense experience. These are the kind of individuals who are only concerned with what's immediately apprehendable to their senses. They're only concerned with what seems pleasurable to the eye, what looks attractive. They are concerned with sense immediacy, if you will. So that is to say immediacy, which is more external or about the external. However, um, there is a kind of immediacy, a religious immediacy, by which it is redoubled or brought inward to itself. So this immediacy is no longer concerned with externalities by having an immediate apprehension with material being, but now orients itself uh, inward. So now that the individual casts themselves into reflection, so they step away from their bodily activity and they, again, resort to this inward reflection, this stepping back and examining themselves and seeing themselves as a self. And now religious immediacy precisely takes place when individuals show that degree of inwardness, this sense of self-recognition um, by orienting themselves towards God in immediacy. So there's two kinds again of immediacy, to say this again. Immediacy that's more concerned with externalities by getting sort of more um, pleasure out of material things. And then there's an immediacy which returns itself inward and finds a joy um, that is grounded in God. It's amidst the changing externalities, the various silhouettes that pass before the eyes. These are all phantoms that go before the self and the spiritual individual takes no delight in them because they have a kind of immediacy which has been oriented now inwards. And so their joy is internal, being constructed by God. And now that's very important, because I think a lot of Christians, or at least so professed Christians, haven't really oriented themselves away from the first kind of immediacy. They just reside in the sway of their passions, what mood uh, they are brought in. And this is a really scary thing. Because think about it, there are some individuals, I really believe, 
um, who don't really recognize themselves as they truly are. So they, in a form of kind of um, of self-denial, because of course I think there's two kinds of self-denial. There's, there's self-denial in finitude, which is what I'm talking about, and there's self-denial in infinitude, which has to do with self-denial in Christ, taking up your cross. But self-denial in finitude has to do with a kind of resignation where an individual is constructing themselves poetically. That is to say, they're taking on um, various constructions. They're trying to build themselves in an understanding that's not built by God. And what's so frightening is that there are individuals who likewise build themselves or construct themselves within these fantasies that is clothed with Christianity or what pretends and prots itself to be Christianity. Like I said, that's very frightening because there are some individuals who don't even recognize that because they just think that if I can share or if I can just get this truth out there, then therefore I'm doing an inherently good thing. Um, But that's really not quite the case because religious truths cannot be directly communicated. They can only be indirectly communicated or that is to say appropriated, lived, and experienced. So when individuals don't come out of these poetic constructions and leave this sort of sense immediacy that's concerned with externalities and they don't come inward, there's a kind of despair that takes place and kind of inexplicability about their anxiety and about their own melancholy that I think these kinds of Christians experience that they're not really acknowledging. Um, But it starts with an acknowledgement or maybe perhaps better to state an asking of who essentially you are. Who am I? We often tend to forget those kinds of questions because I think there's a kind of, um, you know, the modern world tends to laugh at philosophers, if you will, that we're caught in the clouds, uh, if you will, and that we never kind of come down. We're just throwing our coconuts down from the, you know, from the high tree and hopes just to kind of remain in our intellectual towers. But that's really not the case. I think, um, I think we need to ask the sort of questions like, who am I? What does it mean to be a human being? Before we get into those questions of what am I to do? What does it mean to live a good life? And etc. The Christian way of framing uh, this question, this problem, I guess, is to seek first the kingdom of God. And Kierkegaard has this really amazing passage where um, he kind of reflects on that. You know, should I seek an official position within the church? No, you shall seek first the kingdom of God. Well, shall I go bury my dead father? No, you shall seek first the kingdom of God. Well, should I marry this person and pursue a family with them? No, you shall seek first the kingdom of God. And then he expects this kind of response where the individual says, well, that seeking first the kingdom of God almost sounds like almost doing nothing. And Kierkegaard says, yes, in a certain sense, that is precisely what it is. Um, doing nothing. Or that is to say, I think more significantly, Kierkegaard would say um, that in in the religious life, you must become nothing. And this is the self-denial of infinitude, where one experiences a spiritual death and they find themselves uh, rebirthed or constructed in and by God. And so that's just something that's kind of important, worth mentioning. And 
uh, I think, developing more significantly in the religious life. Because I think Christians, um, or at least some perhaps listening or out there in the world who aren't listening, uh, have a confliction of passions that they don't really understand. And that's because they aren't asking these deeper questions of, who am I? Um, And yeah, so I think there's a lot of good philosophy and good theology that just needs to be in dialogue with one another um, among Christians so that they can be better edified in these sort of uh, subjects. So that's all I have for today. Um, Those are my musings on Matthew 8, believing that God can, resorting to prayer and immediacy and all that. So um, yeah, thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the very end uh, of this. Uh, This was a kind of impromptu discussion. Um, so God bless you, um, for staying through. So I hope this was encouraging. Hope this helped. Um, I hope to do more of these kind of little discussions in the future, but otherwise I'm starting something new on my Instagram where I'm going to do lives now. Um, this was a live originally, uh, the connection was so poor that I just really, it just didn't work out. So I just, this is why I'm doing this, uh, because that didn't work out. So now I'm just going to post it on my podcast. So Anyway, God bless you. I'm going to go ahead and stop talking now. (laughs) Have a wonderful day or night and be sure to follow the page wherever else I have it available. God bless you. Bye-bye.